We come now to the time of our evening sermon, and I have again the pleasure of opening God's Word. To begin with this evening, I'm going to be reading in Colossians chapter 2, and we'll hear from this scripture again next week as well, as well as some others, Lord willing. This week I'm going to be considering the doctrine of baptism as it's presented to us in the Westminster Confession of Faith, as we continue making our way through the topics covered in that uh, confession, uh, but also next week I'll more specifically talk about why we baptize uh, covenant children. But tonight I'm going to open up to Colossians chapter 2. This touches on why we baptize covenant children as well. We'll get again more deeply into that next week, but tonight I'll read Colossians 2 verses 6 through 15. This is God's word as he gave to the Apostle Paul to write to the church at Colossae. And so let's attend with reverence to the reading of God's inspired and therefore infallible and inerrant word. Again, Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 through 15. As you therefore have received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him, rooted and built up in him and established in the faith, as you have been taught, abounding in it with thanksgiving. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit, according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and you are complete in him who is the head of all principality and power. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands, by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh, by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you also were raised with him through faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. And you, being dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, he is made alive together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses, having wiped out the handwriting of requirement that was against us, which was contrary to us. And he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross, having disarmed principalities and powers. He made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them in it. So let no one judge you in food or drink or in regard, or regarding a festival or a new moon or Sabbaths, which are shadows of things to come, but the substance is of Christ." I read a couple extra verses there, but thus ends the reading of God's holy word for us for now. We'll be turning back to it, to various scriptures during the sermon time here. But let's pray for God's enlightenment. O Lord our God, even as we read your word, which was inspired by the Holy Spirit, we pray that he would work within us, that we might understand it more deeply, and that by him we would be empowered to Apply it to our lives well as we seek to serve you and to be conformed more to the image of Christ day by day. For we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The last time I talked with you about the sacraments in general, for those who are here, and we have some visitors here, others who are back home for Christmas time and breaks from college, but the last time we were, had an evening service here, I did talk about sacraments in general, and 
And we saw that Christ has established two sacraments for the New Covenant era for Christians, and that is baptism and the Lord's Supper. And the reason that other things that might be considered sacraments by some aren't is because they are either not established directly by God or were not established by God purely for the church, for his covenant people which is really what a sacrament needs to be. It is something that's established directly by God, not by man, and it's something that is uh, for his covenant people. So, of course, marriage is considered to be a sacrament by some. It's established directly by God, but it was not only for his church. It's for, for all of mankind. And in the case of other so-called sacraments, well, they were invented by man. And so we put those aside, but in the New Covenant era, we have baptism in the Lord's Supper, which Jesus himself established. So there God in human flesh established these two sacraments for the church. Over the centuries, there's been a great deal of confusion, not only about what a sacrament is and how many there are, but also over the true sacraments of baptism and the Lord's Supper themselves, there's been a good bit of confusion. And we'll deal with some confusion in the future about uh, the Lord's Supper and what the Bible says the Lord's Supper actually is. But this evening we'll address the question of Christian baptism as Westminster Confession of Faith summarizes the Bible's teaching about it. And we'll look at various scriptures along the way. The Confession defines baptism this way. Baptism is a sacrament, remember then the sacrament we saw, the definition there is that it's a sign and seal, so it's a sign, it points to something that is, uh, that is unseen, so it's something you can see and, and experience with the human senses that points to something you can't experience with your senses directly, it's something spiritual, so, so something you see that points to an unseen reality and a seal, it marks you off as one of God's people. Baptism is a sacrament, the confession says, of the New Testament, ordained by Jesus Christ not only for the solemn admission of the party baptized into the visible church, but also to be unto him a sign and seal of the covenant of grace, of his ingrafting into Christ, of regeneration, of remission of sins, and of his giving up unto God through Jesus Christ to walk in newness of life, which sacrament is by Christ's own appointment to be continued in his church until the end of the world. So Jesus said, well, do this in remembrance of me. And Paul says that we are to continue doing this in 1 Corinthians 11 until the Lord comes. So there that explains the, why at the end there of that paragraph, they said it's to be continued by the church until the end of the world. But again, remember a sacrament is a visible sign of a spiritual reality. It's something established directly by God that sets uh, a, us apart as part of his covenant or in covenant with him. Baptism, as we read in Matthew 28, was ordained by Jesus Christ. So if we look to Matthew 28, starting at verse 18, Jesus came, this is after his resurrection, he appears to his disciples and he says, we're told that Jesus came and spoke to them, saying, All authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Now, just as an aside, I might point out this uh, is talking about his mediatorial kingship, as we call it. That, that Christ, of course, as God, already has all authority. 
But as a man who perfectly served God, even unto death on a cross, he was then given authority. So he's what Adam should have been. He's as a man, he's above everything except God. We've noted this several times recently. And so that's the way in which authority can be given to him. And so we're told all authority, he says, has been given me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. Why? Well, because the nations already belong to him. <laughs> he already has all authority over them, so now he can tell his disciples, you go to every nation and make disciples of it, because those nations already belong to me, and I am claiming people from those nations. And how do we go and make disciples? Well, there are two elements to it. The first is baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. And then verse 20, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Amen. And so we see that Christ there says that what we do to make disciples is we baptize them and we teach them. And so there are, the first element of that is baptizing. So baptism, of course, there we see was directly ordained by God, by Jesus Christ himself. So it is indeed a sacrament. It's a sign of our admission into the visible church. So it's the first sign that you are a disciple of Christ. Right? How do you make a disciple? It involves first baptizing them. If we're going to disciple our children, we'll get to this more in detail next week. What do we do? Well, we should be baptize them. And then teach them everything that Christ has commanded. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, In one spirit we were all baptized into one body. So this is a sign of entrance into the visible church. And as we know from 1 Corinthians 7, having one believing parent makes you holy, makes you something set apart from the world. doesn't mean that you're a believer or that you're saved automatically, but it does set you apart in some way from the world as part of God's covenant people in, in the visible church. Notice that that's what the confession said. It doesn't say that you're part automatically of the invisible church just because you got baptized, but you are part of the visible church. It sets you apart as part of the church that can be seen on earth. And that's true of the children of believers as well as believers. Galatians 3, 27 and 28, As many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. That's how the ESV has it. So there we see that, that it shows our union with Christ and our union with his church. So it's a sign of entrance into the visible covenant people. For the elect, baptism is more than just a sign. It is a sign of being marked off as part of the visible covenant people. But for those who actually are elect, who actually do come to true faith at some point in their life, it is actually a sign and seal of several things beyond that. Number one, the covenant of grace. In Colossians 2, 11 and 12, we're told that it corresponds to old covenant circumcision. In him, in Christ, you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Buried with him in baptism. Notice there it also unites us with his death. We'll get to that in a bit. But we see that, that, it's, that it corresponds to old covenant circumcision. We'll get back to that in a bit here. Romans 4.11 says, Abraham received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness 
that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So in his case, he would be like an adult convert. He has the faith that shows that he is saved, and then the circumcision becomes a sign of that. So just as circumcision was a sign of the covenant that God made with Abraham, counting him righteous by faith and not by works, so baptism is a sign of our being counted righteous in Christ by faith, not by our own works. That's a sign, therefore, of the covenant of grace. But secondly, for those who are in Christ, for those who are the elect, baptism is a sign and seal of our ingrafting into Christ. Galatians 3.27 says that we were baptized into Christ. So there we see that baptism shows It's pointing to the spiritual reality that we are grafted into Christ. Third, for the elect, it's a sign and seal of our regeneration. That is, of being born again. It's like the waters of birth. When we note that when a woman's about to give birth, we'll say that her water broke, and there's water that comes out, as it were, with the child or preceding the child. And I know in real life it's not quite like it is in the movies or somebody's just going going along about her business and doesn't even know that she's going into labor, and oops, my water broke. Um, Or if your British water's broke. Um, But baptism points to that. It points to birth, and therefore really to the new birth in this case. It's a sign of remission of sins. Acts 2.38, Repent and be baptized, Peter says, every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. 1 Peter 3.21 tells us baptism is an appeal to God for a clean conscience. It's it's an appeal to be washed clean from sin. Baptism is a sign and seal, fifthly, of our commitment to walk in newness of life. As the ESV has Romans 6, 3, and 4, Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death, just as we saw here in Colossians chapter 2, that we're buried with him in baptism. That's not talking about the mode of baptism. That's talking about the fact that baptism is a sign of our union with Christ in his death. Paul says then here in Romans 6, verse 4, We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The That passage there in Romans 6 points out that there are two ways in which Christ's resurrection has an effect for us. If we're united to him in a death like his, we'll be united to him in a resurrection like his. So if you're united united to Christ in his death, you'll you'll rise again from the dead just as surely as he did. But that also has an effect for you in the here and now, because it means that you walk in newness of life, as if your old self is dead and there's this new self that's now alive. This uh, touches on the issue of identity in Christ that we're going to be getting into in our Sabbath school classes. But the confession then says, the outward element to be used in this sacrament is water, wherewith the party is to be baptized in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost by a minister of the gospel lawfully called thereunto. And that has to do with what we talked about last time, that uh, the minister's are to be the stewards of the mysteries of God, and so we make sure that ministers, well-qualified people, do the sacraments. It's not because they're magic, uh, but it's because we have to guard 
what the sacraments are. Just as we guard who preaches the word in church, we have to guard then who demonstrates the word through the sacraments. Christian baptism has to be done, though, when it's done, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Or as the confession says, Holy Ghost. Don't, uh, don't think, there's no contradiction there. A spirit just comes from, the, from Latin languages. So where we get our word for a spirit, and the old, the old Germanic word for spirit is ghost. We get from Old English. So there are synonymous terms. But Christian baptism has to be done in the name of the triune God, in the name of each person of the Godhead, in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, as Jesus established in Matthew 28. So that's important, that it has to be done the way, as any sacrament is, has to be done the way that God sets forth in order that we do it right. So while we might seriously disagree, for example, with the Roman Church's additions to the sacrament, uh, Many Protestants, and there is a lot of debate about this these days, but uh, many Protestants will still count Roman Catholic baptism as authentic. And in our church, we have the sessions decide on a case-by-case basis, basically, whether you're going to accept somebody's Roman Catholic baptism. Uh, But the reason it can be, at least under the right circumstances, uh, accepted is because it's still done in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Unitarian baptism uh, would not be considered acceptable. A baptism from some church, so-called, which rejects God as being triune, which rejects the doctrine of the Trinity, that would not be authentic baptism. Baptism that's done in the name of each of the persons of the Godhead is, if done the way Jesus said. Acts 10 Verse 47 and Acts 8, also verses 36 and 38, uh, the very word baptism itself make it clear that you have to use water. <laughs> That's the physical element to be used for baptism. Sadly, I remember several years ago, I was on a road trip somewhere, and I heard a few different sermons from a, a church from St. Louis, Missouri. And they were it sounded like solid Reformed doctrine until I heard about the third sermon from this church, and the pastor was going on about why they do not practice water baptism. Well, now you're a cult. That's not a church. <laughs> this is a, this is a doc, doctrine that has undermined the very gospel that Jesus Christ teaches us. Now, there, there's been a lot of argument over the mode of baptism. Of course, we need to do a sacrament the way Jesus tells us, but the You'll notice that when Jesus established baptism in Matthew 28, he says you're to baptize in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't say anything about baptizing by immersion or by sprinkling or by pouring. So we have to look at, well, what does the word mean? And proponents of full immersion will point out that that the root of the Greek verb, baptizo, from which we get to baptize, uh, means to immerse or, or to dunk. And so they say, see... Baptism has to be by full immersion or it's not a baptism. But we have to recognize that languages change over time. Usages of words change. And so we have to look, well, how was the word used when the New Testament was written? Not what its root is. An example I often use, we have lots of words like this in English, but one that I frequently use, a word that has changed. You can look at the root of a word like prevent. 
And what's the, the etymology of that? What does the word prevent literally mean at its root? Well, it means to go in front of, to go before. But if I told you that I, I prevented Steve getting to church this morning, you wouldn't think that I just meant, well, I got to church ahead of Steve. You'd think I meant I kept Steve from coming to church because that's the way that we use the word now. So we have to think, well, how did people use the word baptize in Jesus' day when he established baptism? When the New Testament was written? Well, what we find is that the common usage of the word baptizo in Greek, the verb, meant washing in any possible way. Most typically, it meant pouring. So it didn't mean full immersion when it was used in the New Testament. I don't need to be fully immersed to have washed or taken a bath. Some will point out that Acts 8 says the Ethiopian eunuch came up out of the water after he was baptized. So obviously, wasn't he fully immersed in the water? But if we look at at Acts chapter 8, we find it says that they, both the Ethiopian eunuch and Philip, who baptized him, came up out of the water. So unless we're imagining that the one doing the baptism also has to be fully immersed while he's doing it, uh, then we have to accept that that is not what is being described there in Acts chapter 8. It means that they went down into a body of water, which was common in those days for baptism, and most likely what would happen was that because baptism more commonly meant pouring in those days, to, to baptize meant more pouring, uh, what we might imagine is that the Ethiopian eunuch, or rather the, the Philip, rather, probably scooped up some water and poured it with his hands over the head of the Ethiopian. So it simply doesn't mean full immersion. So the confession says, dipping of the person into the water is not necessary. doesn't say it can't be done, just that it's not necessary. But baptism is rightly administered by pouring or sprinkling water upon the person. So uh, any of those three modes is perfectly acceptable and fits the biblical terminology for baptism. Hebrews 9 translates the Hebrew words for washing and sprinkling with the verb baptizo. So we see even in the, the New Testament translations of Old Testament scriptures, the verb is used for those things like pouring and sprinkling. So the mode is not the point. The point is the washing with water. And what does washing with water point to? It points to those things that we mentioned. Whether by immersion or pouring or sprinkling, it's this sign and this seal that marks God's people off as united to Christ in his death, as being those who are appealing for the new birth, for a clean conscience, for washing in Christ. Another point of confusion has been over who is to be baptized. Is it professing believers only? Is it all babies? If we, you know, this is why I say actually we don't practice quote-unquote infant baptism. We practice the baptism of covenant children. Because we don't, I don't go to the hospital maternity ward and just start baptizing babies willy-nilly. I baptize covenant children in the church. Do we owe baptism to every infant? Of course, the answer is no. I once had to turn down a couple uh, when I was in my former denomination. They had asked that I, if I could baptize their children. 
But neither the father nor the mother was a member of any church, or certainly not our church. And I explained, well, I can't baptize your children under these circumstances. And the mother sort of angrily said, well, I guess we'll have to join the church. If that's what we need to do to get baptized, to get our kids baptized. Well, that's uh, probably not the attitude we want. Obviously, somebody didn't understand what baptism really was and what it pointed to. Well, here's what the confession says about those things. Not only those that do actually profess faith in and obedience unto Christ, but also the infants of one or both believing parents are to be baptized. So it's the infants of believing parents that are to be baptized. That's the reason we have a rule that allows ministers only to baptize children of covenant or communicant members. Right? I plan to preach more thoroughly on that, as I mentioned next week, Lord willing. Throughout the book of Acts, we find professing believers being baptized. There's no confusion about that. Somebody in adulthood comes to faith in Christ and haven't been baptized, they get baptized. Look at Acts 2.41, for example. In Acts 16, we also find two cases of believers and his or her entire household being baptized. And that would presumably include children. But the reason that we baptize children has are much more deep covenantal reasons that I'll get into next week. Aside from that circumstantial evidence, we have a theological argument, just to give you a little foretaste of that, that for infant baptism, as we saw in Colossians 2, 11 and 12. In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision made without hands by putting off the body of the sins of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ, buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. So Christians receive some kind of non-physical, some spiritual circumcision, right? The circumcision not made with hands. And the way we do that is by being buried with him in baptism. Diagramming that sentence in the Greek actually makes it even clearer that to be baptized is to be circumcised with this circumcision not made with hands, with this spiritual circumcision. Baptism, in other words is the sign under the new covenant that points to the exact same thing that old covenant circumcision pointed to. Baptism takes the place of circumcision. Also, we can look to the old covenant and see who was circumcised. The New Testament doesn't say who to baptize. There's no verse that tells you, here's who you baptize. Just baptize those who you're making disciples of. That's all the, the specifics we have. Well, who was circumcised in the Old Covenant, though? Was it professing believers only? Certainly professing believers did get circumcised, but no, every male eight days old, as God commanded in Genesis 17.12. Think of Jacob and Esau. Both were circumcised as infants, but only Jacob would have saving faith. It wasn't about the personal beliefs. It was about the fact that they were born into the covenant family. To believing parents. Another point of confusion about baptism is what it does and how it works. Is it even necessary? Is it indispensable? Can you be saved without it? The confession points out, although it is it although it be a great sin to condemn or neglect this ordinance, so it's a great sin 
either to say baptism is not necessary at all, or to neglect it and say, let's not worry about doing it. Let's just choose not to do it. Yet grace and salvation are not so inseparably annexed unto it as that no person can be regenerated or saved without it. So you don't need to be baptized to be saved. Or that all are baptized or undoubtedly regenerated. So it's not baptismal regeneration that if you get baptized, now you are automatically saved. Christ commanded baptism, so it must not be neglected. But it's faith, not baptism, that's the instrument of salvation. Romans 10.9 doesn't say, well, if you believe in your heart that Jesus, you confess with your mouth, rather, that Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and get baptized, you will be saved. No, it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. So it's a grave sin to neglect baptism because it's a commandment of Christ. But not being baptized doesn't keep a person from being saved. Think of the repentant sinner on the cross next to Jesus. Jesus didn't tell him, well, today you would have been with me in paradise, but sorry you didn't get baptized. No, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Conversely, <coughs> baptism is not magic. Because getting baptized doesn't automatically save anybody. Being baptized is not uh, conferring salvation on anybody. We read the apostolic letters in the New Testament, and we find frequent examples of false Christians, and think particularly those that John says they went out from us because they were not of us. Well, so these were, would have been baptized members of the church, but they left, and they show that they were never really believers. Baptism didn't save them. They ended up opposing the gospel. Baptism does not save, Jesus saves. So what does baptism do then, and why are we commanded to do it? Well, aside from its role as a sign and seal, as we've already established, we need to think of who is it a sign and seal for? How and when is it applied to them? And the confession concludes here, the efficacy of baptism is not tied to that moment of time wherein it is administered, Yet notwithstanding, by the right use of this ordinance, the grace promised is not only offered, but really exhibited and conferred by the Holy Ghost to such, whether of age or infants, as that grace belongeth unto, according to the counsel of God's own will in his appointed time. So in other words, the sign and seal of baptism is conferred by the Holy Spirit on whomever he wants to confer it onto, in other words, the elect, when he wills it. John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wills, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. So maybe you were baptized as an infant, but you come to faith when you're 22. Well, you were elect, so the Holy Spirit empowered that baptism when you were baptized, but the covenant with which it was a, or for which it was a sign and seal was not really in full effect in your life until that day you were born again. And you don't have to go and get baptized again. The baptism's effects are upon you. If you were baptized as an infant or any other time, and then you're never born again, well, covenantally speaking, yes, you're part of the, the visible church, but it just makes you more accountable before God 
physically speaking, all that happened was you got wet. So yes, you were marked off as part of the visible church, but if you never are part of the invisible church, well, baptism doesn't have any spiritual positive effect for you. If you come to faith and you've never been baptized, well, you're commanded to get baptized. Think of circumcision again. You know, any boy born into the covenant family of the people of Abraham was circumcised at eight days old. Any adult male joining that people would be circumcised as he entered into the covenant. Abraham was 99 when it happened to him. And like circumcision, because baptism signifies entrance into the covenant family, it's a once-in-a-lifetime sacrament. The sacrament of baptism is but once to be administered to any person, the confession says. Romans 6, 3-11 says, Or do you not know that as many as of us as were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into His death? Therefore we were buried with Him through baptism into death, that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life, for if we have been united together in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old man was crucified with him, that the body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves of sin. For he who has died has been freed from sin. Now if we died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, dies no more. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he lives, he lives to God. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Lord willing, this has given you something of a deeper understanding of what the sacrament of baptism is, and next time we'll look more specifically at the baptism of covenant children. But do not neglect baptism. It's a sign and seal of your entrance into the covenant family, God's covenant community, of of Christ's grace in your life, of your ingrafting into Him, of the forgiveness of your sins, of your surrender to God and commitment to walk in newness of life. So be sure to honor baptism as a true sign and seal of the grace that you have in Christ Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for baptism, which is a sign of our new birth, our cleansing in Christ, our entrance into life by faith in Jesus Christ, to whom we are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Cause us to walk in newness of life as we are ingrafted into Christ and Help us, therefore, to display him to the world, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.